Movies, TV, and music have influenced more of what I think than I'd like to actually admit. <laughs> yeah, I'm embarrassed by how much medicine I've learned from TV ads or scrubs. Sadly, I totally agree with you. Don't worry, guys. I take it with a grain of salt, and we did go to med school. But not everything they get is always correct. Let's take, for example, the key premise of one of the classic movies of the 90s, The Saint. It's not a classic, It Steve. is, and it's wonderful. And so Elizabeth Shue's character has to take a medication every single day because otherwise she'll die of congenital heart disease. Yeah, that was not realistic. What disease were they even shooting for? I have no idea. <laughs> but, you know, it's still a pretty good movie, especially if it's a rainy day. One thing that TV usually does get right, though, is heart attacks. Have you noticed how often that comes up? Well, it's very dramatic and symbolic, so I guess I get it. And to my credit, sometimes their recreations are spot on. You're right on. They recreate heart attacks really well. Yeah, case in point. I read that in the movie Vice, the actor Christian Bale actually suggested to his writer-director, Adam McKay, that nausea and epigastric pain can be symptoms of a heart attack. So they went with that on film. Crazy enough, McKay himself actually had a heart attack and recognized it because he had similar symptoms. Yeah, that's super ironic. My favorite TV show growing up was The West Wing. And towards the end of the series, Leo actually suffers a heart attack in what's an eerily familiar scene with almost a classic caricature of an old man in the cold clutching his chest. And this movie trivia gets really sad because the actor that played Leo, John Spencer, actually died of a heart attack himself. That's really sad. I know. He's my favorite. He was, right? Unfortunately, these classic cases happen almost every day, but most of the time, chest pain really isn't that clear. Often, histories are confusing, and lab tests don't always help us clear things up. Part of that is that coronary disease is a complicated spectrum. People with diabetes can have silent MIs, women are more likely to have symptoms mistakenly attributed to anxiety, and the elderly are more likely to have atypical symptoms like abdominal pain. And we see a lot of people come to our emergency rooms with chest pain because people are afraid of getting a heart attack. So if they get chest pain, they're going to come get their symptoms checked out. And the annual incidence of MI is only 0.6%. So not surprisingly, most people who present with chest pain actually aren't having a heart attack. But it's still on us to try to figure out what's going on. So today we're going to tackle how to approach chest pain. To be fair, there's a lot out there on how to diagnose and manage a STEMI. That's an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, the real deal. We're going to focus on the not so obvious cases, specifically whether or not something is unstable angina. Our goal is to help you understand unstable angina and the many different ways you can think about it and approach it. But that's actually going to take more than one episode. So we've broken it into two. But we'll still highlight all of the teaching points we're going to cover in both episodes today. That's because we want you guys to think of this all together. So let's start off by reminding ourselves about, one, what is the definition of acute coronary syndrome, or ACS? Specifically, we'll clarify the difference between non-ST elevation MI, or NSTEMI, and unstable angina. And we'll also explain these definitions in the context of the clinical history of the disease. Next, we'll move on to two, how the TIMI score came to be and its role in risk stratifying patients with ACS, so you can figure out who's really at risk of bad outcomes. And focus on putting this all together with three, pathophysiology of how we think about patients with chest pain and how to incorporate presentation, risk scores, and pathophysiology into how do we think about unstable angina. Our hope is that by addressing it step-by-step, step, we can give you a more complete picture of how to tackle the surprisingly difficult diagnosis of ACS. So let's see if we can quit playing games with those hearts. And go a little deeper into ACS and unstable angina. I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. Welcome to Mind the Gap. Many thanks to Dr. Norma Keller, Chief of Cardiology at Bellevue Hospital and Assistant Professor of Medicine at NYU, for peer-reviewing this episode. 
And we also want to take a minute to give a shout out to our brand new website. Check us out at coreimpodcast.com. Thanks. <laughs> no, seriously, check it out. So let's start things off by defining terms. Acute coronary syndrome is caused by coronary artery plaque disruption, which leads to an abrupt reduction in blood flow and can be accompanied by angina. And it's a spectrum that includes but really isn't limited to STEMI. There are also NSTEMIs and unstable angina. The 2014 AHA ACC clinical guidelines lump these last two into an overarching category called NSTEACS. Part of the reason for this is that unstable angina and NSTEMI are clinically indistinguishable. The AHA defines angina as a pressure-like substernal chest pain brought on by minimal exertion or even occurring at rest that lasts for more than 10 minutes. To differentiate the two of them, we're going to need lab work. Yeah, what differentiates NSTEMI from UA is in its name. The MI stands for myocardial infarction, meaning it requires positive cardiac biomarkers, which nowadays just means troponin, but in the past also included CKMB. And this is an important point, so let's say very clearly again. NSTEMI has positive troponins, UA has negative troponins. But clinical presentation-wise, they're the same. It's just that simple. Just remember that troponins are not always synonymous with ACS. Yes. To pull from our sister Aquarium podcast, Five Pearls. Here's a quote from Dr. Greg Katz, NYU cardiologist. I think about a troponin as being either due to a coronary occlusion or not due to a coronary occlusion. And if that's the distinction that you're trying to make in your mind, it makes you think about patients differently. And I think that all of the the way that you you teach people about diagnostic and clinical reasoning, it's about giving yourself a way to frame a patient in your mind and get closer to making a diagnosis and closer to getting the right treatment for somebody. And so when I see a troponin, I'm always thinking about, do I think this patient has a coronary occlusion? And if you frame it all in that way, it really simplifies your your thinking quite a bit. His point is, of course, that you always have to consider the clinical context when interpreting a positive troponin. The differential is long, and everything from demand ischemia or myocarditis could be going on. We won't get into all of that now, but it's important to notice that conversely, just because the troponin is negative doesn't mean you've excluded ACS. And that's the beauty of the definition of unstable angina. It doesn't require a positive troponin, but the story should still be convincing for cardiac ischemia. Beauty here is relative. (laughs) Classically, angina is described as a retrosternal pain radiating to the left arm and is associated with exertion. But what about atypical symptoms, Steve? You know, you know, anginal equivalents. Literally my least favorite phrase. Yeah, that's why I brought it up. I think you've mentioned that once or twice. Jerk. But (laughs) it's obviously important to acknowledge, especially because, as we mentioned earlier, atypical symptoms are more likely to occur in women. Additionally, patients with diabetes and the elderly may hardly have symptoms at all. Well, let's go through a few anginal equivalents. Just humor me. First, there's new or worsening dyspnea on exertion. Then there's syncope, nausea, vomiting, and pleuritic chest pain. Okay, we'll stop there. But the list goes on. And on. (laughs) And to say the obvious, just because a patient has atypical features, that doesn't mean you can take ACS off the differential. In the perfect words of the AHA... Quote, although typical characteristics increase the probability of CAD, atypical features do not exclude ACS. So when I mentioned in a previous episode that angel equivalents drive me nuts, this is why. Of course, real life doesn't perfectly match the textbook, but this is a frustratingly real life example of just that. Well, actually, it's not that uncommon. The AHA guidelines cite one study, the multi-center chest pain study, where atypical symptoms were incredibly common. 7% of patients with ACS had reproducible pain with palpation. And 13% had pleuritic chest pain, so this isn't always just costochondritis. Another 22% will have stabbing chest pain. So where does that leave us? Just treat everyone for ACS? 
Or maybe don't treat anyone. Or maybe in the words of one of my old attendings, the key is to just stress them and bless them. They really said that. Yeah, they did. <laughs> uh, well, maybe that's it for today and our episode on chest pain. It's impossible to know. So please stress everyone you meet. And cue outro music. Okay, just kidding. I hope no one believed that. The problem is with that logic that a stress test is still just that. It's a test. <laughs> and if you want to use Bayesian logic, so shout out to our friend, Dr. Dave Way, you'll need to understand your test characteristics and have a pretest probability to help inform how you're interpreting your stress test results. A test just can't get you out of thinking about whether or not a clinical syndrome matches. After all, get an MRI on a patient and you could easily find an incidentaloma that has nothing to do with their symptoms. The same logic holds true here. Your patient may have CAD and they may have chest pain, but you can create any number of reasons why those two might be true, true, and unrelated. Incidental OCA. <laughs> does not flow off the tongue, Steve, but I, I like disagree. it. <laughs> the true gold standard for diagnosing ACS is a combination of clinical assessment and cardiac catheterization. But of course, the latter we can't and probably shouldn't do on everyone. So in times of clinical uncertainty, we'll use a stress test to see if we should be advocating for a cath. Of course, remember, only if the patient is stable. Though, with decreasing rates of cath complications, you could make the argument that it's not an entirely silly notion to cath people even when ACS is not a slam dunk. No, no, that pains me. We are in the <laughs> modern day of value-based medicine, Steve. So I think it's reasonable to say that cathing everyone with any chest pain remotely concerning for ACS is probably still a bad idea. So to better understand understand when is it worth moving on to cath, we should decide which patients we're probably not that worried about. So to do this, we're going to move on from ACS presentations and focus on the concept of risk stratification, specifically estimating an individual patient's risk based on population level data. And their risk level based off the data that we have in their clinical presentation hopefully should guide us on whom to cath. To cath or not to cath. And just to be clear, when we say cath in this episode, we're usually referring to stenting, otherwise known as percutaneous coronary intervention, aka PCI. So the real question is, to stent or not to stent? In other words, if you come in with chest pain but nothing bad happens to your heart in the next month, just a quick word from our sponsor, we all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Was that chest pain actually clinically significant? 
if a tree falls in the woods, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but this isn't to be Zen. The logic here is actually sound. If we can stratify patients by risk, it makes sense to leave the low-risk patients be and avoid cathing them because nothing is likely to happen to them anyway, especially after we factor in how effective current medications are at reducing the risk of future ACS. And so to understand how we began to think this way, let's take a detour and travel back to the late 90s and Eugene Brudwald. You guys might recognize Brownwald's name from the famous Harvard Timmy Group. The Timmy Group was trying to tackle the fact that chest pain at rest may seem benign, but is actually a pretty dangerous syndrome. In an earlier review, they found that troponin positivity at either the zero or six hour mark carried a risk of death or MI of 25% at six months. And when comparing it to other types of chest pain, recent ongoing chest pain at rest had the highest rate, making it the most dangerous. So the Timmy Group wanted to figure out how to identify those 25% before they died, not after. Generally a good idea. (laughs) So they looked at risk factors of having a bad cardiac outcome, and they started with troponin. You see, we've known for a long time that troponin positivity correlates with increased mortality risk. Okay, this should not be a surprise. The more heart tissue is dying, the more likely that something serious is going on. Cardiac or not. And the worse off you're likely to be. Think of it as similar to the QSOFA score for sepsis. They suggested checking a troponin both at the time of arrival in the ED and again at six hours. So we've been doing that now for literally 30 years. And that's where the standard practice comes from. How cool is that? <laughs> the 1990s. Maybe it's not that cool, but they <laughs> compared outcomes based on if you were troponin positive or negative. And when they looked at their database, they found that troponin positivity at either the zero or six hour mark carried a risk of death or MI of 25% at six months whereas the troponin negative group had a less than 5% chance at six months. Given the clear differences in the troponin positive and troponin negative populations, they thought, well, hey, I bet we can make a score out of that. So they added in data from Timmy 11B and the Essence trial, and the new UAN-STEMI Timmy score was born. Thus achieving their actual goal, creating a hard-to-memorize score that could be used to pimp and terrorize medical students for years to come. So cynical, Steve. (laughs) You sound scarred. Okay, I think the components make clinical sense. It includes age, known CADs, CAD risk factors, aspirin use, EKG changes, troponin, and repeat chest pain in 48 hours. And this is why you honored medicine and I did not. (laughs) But let's be real. I'm going to guess that you're like me and you're not going to really retain it if we just say these things. So let's use a mnemonic. Our core IM team would be proud. And so the one I learned was carrots 65 Carrots like the diamond, not like the vegetable. (laughs) C is for CAD. A is for aspirin. R is for risk factors. A is for angina, having it again in 48 hours. T is for troponin. S is for ST changes. And 65 for the H. Can't believe you just made me do that. (laughs) Everyone else, feel free to just Google it on your local computer whenever you need a refresher. Other versions of this also include the heart score, which itself is actually a mnemonic. Okay, and that one we will not list, Steve, because our plan was to focus on Timmy, but it is a useful test that helps to evaluate if your patient is low risk or high risk. Yeah, so we definitely won't list it here, but it has some similarities to Timmy, including E for ECG and T for (laughs) troponin positivity. (laughs) Our goal is to help you all remember the purpose of these tests, not to memorize them, to help us decide if a person falls into a low-risk chest pain category or not, so they can be quote-unquote ruled out. Not surprisingly, we're looking for a score that is sensitive. We don't want to miss anything deadly. We want those woods to be dead quiet. (laughs) Exactly. With that in mind, let's look at the Timmy score. What the Timmy group found was that people with low scores of 0, 1, or 2 points had a low risk of all-cause mortality and MI in 14 days. And at the time, they found that that was around 2.9%. That's pretty good. Yes, but is it enough? After all, the 2014 AHA guidelines admit that this score alone does not rule out MI. And so to some, 2.9% might suggest that three of these outcomes for every 100 people that you see. Of 
of course, you can't just rely on Timmy. No clinician uses a score alone. Then we'd all be robots. And that would probably be the future. (laughs) The future. (laughs) But seriously, clinical context cannot be completely ignored, even if we incorporate it like the H for history in heart. No, Steve, stop (laughs) distracting us with the Uh, mnemonic. They're pretty great, though. Okay, okay. But ultimately, no numerical score is going to achieve a sensitivity of 100%. Otherwise, it'd also be known as a gold standard. Well, let's not move on from the Timmy score just yet. Some of you may have Googled it and are now wondering... Wait a minute. Didn't you guys say that a Timmy score of 1 to 2 has a 2.9% risk? That's not what MD Calc and Wikipedia say at all. (laughs) You'll probably see that for Timmy scores of 0 and 1, it says there's about a 5% risk. And for Timmy of 2 points, it says there's an 8% risk. So are we liars now? (laughs) Yes. Is that what we've become? Well, okay, no. You were specific that we were only citing numbers for MI and mortality. Ah, technicality. And that higher 5 and 8% from the Timmy score also includes the risk for urgent revascularization. All of these outcomes together are commonly called MACE, or Major Adverse Cardiac Events. To summarize, we're talking about death, MI, and the need for urgent revascularization. But in the words of the wise sage Big Bird, one (laughs) of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. What does urgent revascularization really mean, Janine? <laughs> well, if something is ACS, but it doesn't result in death or NMI, then by definition, it has to be unstable angina. As we already described, unstable angina patients present with a concerning story and maybe even EKG changes, but they do not have a positive troponin to support their diagnosis. So by default, they don't have an MI. They don't meet criteria for STEMI or NSTEMI and therefore are classified as UA. But as we discussed, we can't stop here. We have to use the TIMI score to figure out whether or not they are at high or low risk of death or MI. So remember, we're interpreting TIMI outcomes after 14 days. If you have someone you saw with unstable angina that gets urgently revascularized, within 14 days of you seeing them, but never had an MI or died, you have to wonder, what convinced their doctor to take them to the cath lab the second time? Their troponin is still negative. And also, what did they see there? Ask any interventionalist you meet, and they'll probably say they've seen multiple cases in their careers of patients with negative biomarkers, but with catheterization findings that were actually concerning for MI physiology. And so we should be absolutely clear, UA definitely does exist, and it can be dangerous. But using it as an outcome in Timmy opens up some questions. I mean, ask yourself, what's the inevitable outcome of UA that we're trying to avoid? MI or death. So while it's reasonable to say that people diagnosed with UA were caught before those bad outcomes, the thinking can become a little circular and therefore problematic. Most people have improvements in cardiac chest pain after a cath, whether you're dealing with stable or unstable angina. But beyond feeling better, the question should be whether cathing the patient saved them from death or MI. But once you've cathed them, it can be hard to tell. And this highlights the challenge of interpreting these major adverse cardiac outcomes, aka MACE, as a group. Two of the three outcomes, MI and death, are clear. The last one, UA, is a real outcome but could be more challenging and subjective to diagnose. So next time we're going to try to delve a little deeper into these ideas. We're going to focus on understanding the pathophysiology of unstable angina and using all of the things that we've discussed today and next time to understand unstable angina. To get to the bottom of it, we have to go beyond Timmy and heart scores, sorry Steve, Ooh. and enter into a debate over whether or not unstable angina is clinically relevant. But that's all we're going to talk about for now. So to recap, we've covered the definitions of unstable angina and acute coronary syndrome. ACS is a clinical 
syndrome caused by loss of coronary artery blood flow from an obstructing plaque, and it's a spectrum from STEMI to NSTEMI to UA. Both NSTEMI and UA patients have a clinical story convincing for ACS, but NSTEMIs have positive troponins and UA does not. With both NSTEMIs and UA, it's important to know the danger of bad outcomes because we can't just cath everyone. No. So if you're not sure if the patient has UA and might be low risk, they probably won't need invasive testing. And that's what the Timmy score was designed to do. But it's important to understand what the Timmy score is trying to predict. That's the risk of MACE, or major adverse cardiac events, in 14 days. A catch-all that includes MI and death, but also includes urgent revascularization, a very subjective outcome, as I hope we've convinced you. So we prefer to break it down to risk of MI and death only. So for a Timmy score of 0 to 1 points, this clarifies the risk of outcomes we can clearly define from 5% to 2.9%. So that's actually all for today on our podcast. Cue outro music. (laughs) For real this time. If you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use. It helps other people find us and lets us know how we're doing. So follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can also send an email to hello at coraimpodcast.com, all one gigantic word. As always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. So to do this, we're going to move on from ACS presentations and focus on the concept of risk stratification. (laughs) That's the biggest tongue twister. So to do this, we're going to move on from ACS presentations and focus on the concept of risk stratification. you just do that one more time? Yes. So to do this, we're going to move on from ACS presentations and focus on the concept of risk (laughs) stratification. So to do this, we're going to move on from ACS presentations and focus on the concept of risk stratification. Okay, and read this part. Damn you, Steve. No. Risk stratification. Okay, next section. Next section. Just read it once. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Sally sells seashells by the seashore. Those shells, she sells, or seashells, for sure. (laughs) Okay. Okay, next section. (laughs) At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 